Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sailorville's Church Online Live uh, presentation of the gospel as we open the Word of God. And we invite you uh, this morning to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12 and come together in your living rooms or wherever you're at in the home. And uh, I hope you've been worshiping with us already. Love that song, uh, Worshiping the Lamb of God. And that is our focus today, the Lamb of God as the very bread of our lives. If you've been thinking about it, you've been following uh, during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, you know that every report you hear, every story, every statistic, every warning, every prediction uh, ends with the exact same exhortation. Stay home, practice social distancing, cover your mouths, and wash your hands. Now, why is that? In a word, the concern is the spread. That's the concern. Because this thing spreads, infects, and in some cases kills. By now, you've, we've learned a lot about this uh, virus. I can only imagine uh, two, three, or even five years from now, how much we'll know, you know, looking back, how much we wish we would have known. We do know it's contagious. We do know it's, it's, uh, it's a res uh, respiratory virus. We do know that the victims, that is those who get infected, need uh, all the health in their bodies to, to that they can to muster a fight against it. Uh, and we know that some, the elderly and those with preconditions, we know that they're the most susceptible and some of them, and thankfully it's a small percentage, but some of them succumb. On the heels of the Passover that we have been looking at for the past several weeks uh, comes another feast, uh, a feast that uh, God introduces right after the Passover. And in fact, on the Passover night, because the, day, the Jewish day began in the evening, that would be the beginning right after Passover of the feast of unleavened bread. And it would picture one who was to come who would stop the greater virus, it's more than a virus, and the spread of the greatest of all diseases, that of sin. And that's a disease that all of us have been afflicted by. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he would stop it, the one who was to come, who is pictured in the passage of Scripture this morning, the one who was to come, would stop the spread in part, not in whole, but in part, by his perfect life. And it's pictured in the feast of unleavened bread. Now, like a, like a run-on sentence, uh, uh, the Passover, that is the feast of unleavened bread, like I said, comes right on the edge of the Passover. That's why sometimes the Passover is even referred to in the Bible as the feast of unleavened bread. They're sort of melded together, so to speak. It, the, the Passover only lasted one day, one night, really. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread would last for seven days. And it's all, it's really laid out there in a teaching form in Leviticus chapter th uh, 23, if you want to go there at another time. But just to review, in case you haven't been with us, the children of Israel have been incarcerated for 400 years. They become slaves in Egypt under uh, the, the whip of Pharaoh. God raises up the deliverer, Moses. 
Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then a series of decimating uh, curses upon them, plagues upon the Egyptians. And whereby in chapter 12 tells us God is pummeling one false God after another in Egypt. And he, does, he doesn't do it because he, in order to wrench his people away from Pharaoh, it wasn't like God was saying, well, that one didn't work. Let me try another one. It was all by design, knock down that pantheon of gods in Egypt so that he might be seen as the one true God. And now we've come to the very last plague. It, it, historically, from the text, it hasn't taken place yet. But the text sort of indicates or actually reads like it has. It's the last plague, and it's the death of the firstborn in every home, even right down to the cattle throughout all of, of Egypt. Uh, unless there was a substitute that was found, a sacrifice that was made, the blood of that sacrifice applied, and then those individuals had to be under the protection of that blood as they took the blood of the lamb that they, that they had examined and then killed and applied it uh, to their homes. It was a perfect lamb. If you were with us last week, they had to be examined for five days much as Jesus was examined throughout his life, he is the Lamb of God, right? He's the one that John said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when God sees the blood on the houses of these Jewish people, the scripture tells us in Exodus 12, verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, last week we made it personal. We asked you the question, do you have the lamb's blood upon your home or just a bad paint job? I think it's a legitimate question because Christianity is still pretty popular in our country. And most of us like to declare ourselves Christian. Not all of us. Some of you that are declaring yourself Christian, you think you have the lamb's blood applied to you, but there's no real evidence of that. Just a bad paint job. It reminds me of, of uh, when, uh, when I came to the first church, you're about to hear, uh, you're about to hear uh, the scripture read from the, the pastor of the church that I used to pastor. So over 30 years ago, when I first came to this little country church, uh, it was a wood building that had a really, really bad paint job. They just had a bunch of professional painters come in and paint it, but the paint just kept peeling off. The wood was dry. It was just really, really bad. They came back, they patched it up, but it was just bad. So bad that a friend of mine who preached there before I got there pulled into the parking lot. His wife took one look at the building and she said to her husband, I don't even want to go in there. I mean, that's how bad it looked. That's how bad it really was. But the truth of the matter is, when you just have a bad paint job on your life and not the blood of Jesus, nobody wants to buy into what you have. Nobody wants to believe what you say. So you need to ask yourself, if you're a real true follower of the Lamb of God, do you have his blood applied to your life? And when God saw the blood, it, we, uh, theologians like to say it propitiated him, it satisfied him. Uh, so propitiation is a, is a powerful doctrine. But just quickly, when, when we look upon the cross, when you and I look upon the cross, we see the punishment inflicted upon Jesus for our sin. When Father God looked down on the cross, he saw the payment by Jesus for our sin. It propitiated him. It satisfied him. 
And that's why we need to have the true blood of Christ applied to our lives. Now that brings us to our text. Uh, if you're in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, and my friend uh, Zach Fisher is going to come and read that for us. Zach? Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Well, thus says the word of God. Amen. Thank you so much, Zach. Now, originally, the significance of the unleavened bread, if you were with us uh, last week, had to do with hastening, getting out of Dodge, uh, so to speak. Uh, because they remember they were eat with their belts on, their sandals on, ready to go because it was time to leave Egypt. And if you noticed in the reading of the scripture, uh, leaven or unleaven is mentioned nine times in just six verses. So we know that there's a, there's a real force here. There's a, there's a real emphasis here on leaven and the meaning of it. So originally in verse 11, the whole idea is leaven is, and we'll see, it, it's the thing that makes the bread rise. It takes time for that to happen. There was no time for that. They needed to get out of Dodge uh, quickly, so to speak. And yet, right on the heels of the actual Passover itself, before it occurred, God goes deeper. He shows us that leaven is more than just a picture, a metaphor, a figure of speech, an illustration of hastening or going quickly. Because he orders them to remove all the leaven. And if they don't, <laughs> they do so. They keep it, that is, on pain of death. So... What is leaven? Basically, it's, it's yeast, okay? And uh, you that cook, you that bake, that is, you're familiar with this. Technically, and this is going to gross you out, but technically it's a fungus, okay? So it introduces corruption. Uh, a lump of old dough is what it is in a high state of fermentation. It, it basically, what it does is it eats the sugar, is what it does, in, in the dough, and it releases carbon di dioxide, CO2. And so it spreads. Now listen, this is really interesting from a metaphorical perspective. What it does is it, it, it spreads through the dough, infecting the whole batch. It puffs up the dough. You see in the analogies here? The outside, listen, it puffs up the outside while, wait for it, devouring the inside. It gets bigger, but it doesn't gain any weight. I just think the, 
the analogies are just so powerful. Is it any wonder that leaven would become a symbol? In fact, in many ways, the symbol for sin. And what sin does when it starts to get into our life, albeit small at first, starts to grow, puffs us up, permeates, pervades our lives. Uh, someone recently, uh, I was told, uh, was confronted in their pride, in their puffiness. And uh, they have said repeatedly, why, why do people not, not believe I'm humble? Let me just tell you something, my friend. If, uh, if people are asking or wondering or questioning whether or not you're humble, you probably aren't. <laughs> you probably are not. Because what sin does is it puffs up, creates pride, it grows, it corrupts our entire life. It has those dominating characteristics. And while you might look bigger in your own eyes or even in the eyes of some by that whole outward appearance, you're being devoured on the inside. You're not gaining any weight either, spiritually speaking. I think it was Alexander Pope, not a Christian, but he had a great analogy of sin. He said, sin is a vice of such awful mean that to be hated is but to be seen, but seen too oft, familiar with face. At first we endure, then pity, then embrace. That's the growth, the corrupting elements of sin. By its nature, it spreads like the COVID-19 virus. It, in fact, you well know that one of the reasons all these restrictions are putting, uh, put upon us is so that we don't infect other people. And sometimes we infect the very people we love. I have a son that uh, they're, they're really strict about this. They have little ones, and I, I've missed their little ones. They're my grandkids. So I, I went to their home the other day, and we had a conversation through the window. But that's just so that I wouldn't infect, or they wouldn't infect, the ones they love. Some of you remember the friendship bread. I'm, I'm sure it's probably, they, you know, people probably still do this. Friendship bread was, is basically a baking chain letter you know, where uh, you get a little yeast from your other batch and uh, you give it to your friend. It's sometimes called a starter. And then that friend gives it to another friend and so on and so forth. And that's how you keep spreading, so to speak. Now, in the first 13 verses, if you were with us last week, we saw, again, leaven is depicted as something that says, uh, hey, there's no time for this to rise in the bread. You got to go. Uh, but now, if you saw it from the Bible reading, verse 15 and in verse 19, we're warned in both places that if there's any leaven in the house anywhere, that person, that house will be cut off, which is a metaphor for being killed. That's taking it very, very seriously. Obviously, this is depicting now more than just being in a hurry. The corrupting properties of leaven became a powerful, lasting picture of the corrupting nature of sin. So much so that by the time you get to the New Testament, that's about the only way people thought of leaven. Jesus said this about the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, not scribes, but Pharisees and Sadducees. And he refers to verse 12, their teaching, the leaven of their teaching. 
And then in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, he says in another time, he warns, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So you've got false teaching and you have hypocrisy. So false teaching are basically words that don't line up with the truth. And hypocrisy is basically a life that doesn't line up with the truth. And we can be fooled by both. And that's why Jesus warns us not to be fooled. Later, the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 5. Do you not know that a little leaven, that's that starter he's referring to, leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, notice he's, Paul has 1,500 years later has made the connection between the Passover lamb and Jesus, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven. That's, that's a reference to our old lives, the way we used to live, the way we used to think, the way we used to talk. The leaven of, and then he adds a couple of more evil elements, corrupting elements of sin, malice, which is, is, is hurtful thinking, to, to wish something evil upon someone. And of course, evil itself. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity, and truth. And he tells us why. In Galatians, when he says the same thing in just a summary, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Like leaven or yeast, it only takes a little bit of sin that you begin to tolerate in your own life that'll start to permeate your life and eventually start infecting others. I was thinking about the colleges of our own, just in our short 200 plus history, year history of our country. Colleges like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They were all, be, they all began as dedicated Christian colleges. Eventually, they got rid of the whole doctrine of Christ. How did that happen? Well, somebody got in there. Somebody got into those institutions. They didn't just swap them out in one day. It was a small compromise. And then the rest of it just caved over time. I remember talking to a brand new Christian that I've been working with. And, uh, and they, they told me, just blatantly, they told me how they lied about something. It wasn't, it wasn't an astronomical lie, but it was a lie. And I, I said to him, you lied about it? And I'll never forget, he looked at me and goes, he, he basically said, lighten up, Pat. It was just a white lie. And, okay, I, I get what they were saying. But if we start to tolerate those kinds of things, what, what's next? Our Kent Hughes rightly says, God has a zero tolerance policy on sin. Now, on what leaven pictured both Jews and Christians agree. In fact, chapter 12, verse 15, we saw this, but look at it again. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. Okay? Now, in modern Jewish homes during a Passover, during the Seder, we'll get to that in a moment, but in those homes, they literally have a purge during the Passover, the, the, but it, there's a lot of symbolism. The, the mother will cut up little pieces of bread, not, uh, not matzah, not unleavened bread, but actually leaven, uh, leavened bread and hide it 
in different places in the house. Now, the way she would hide it would be the way my mom would hide uh, the Easter bowls of candy that we get up every Easter morning. She, she obviously wanted us to find them. Or my wife, every Easter, we have our grandkids come over and she goes in the backyard and she hides these eggs all over the place. But enough that a two-year-old could easily find them, although I usually mow two or three over, you know as the uh, spring gets going. But the point is, the mom hides these leavened pieces around the house with the intention that they'll find those pieces. Uh, the family then, it's a, it's a all family, the whole family, they take candles, they take a feather, and they go around and they start sweeping out these little pieces of leavened bread, and then they take them out and they burn them. And when they burn them, listen to the prayer that an Orthodox Jew will pray. And here it is. Just as we did remove leaven from our homes and burned it, so we pray that we should be able to remove evil inclinations from within us always. Sounds very Christian, doesn't it? And then the rabbi Alexandri, who writes in the Talmud, would often end his prayers with this prayer. Sovereign of the universe, it is full Known well to thee that our will is to perform thy will. And what prevents us? The yeast in the dough. Ken Howard, who writes a book on, the, on all of the feast of Israel, tells a story of how he was in Israel during a Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Remember, uh, unleavened bread. Remember, they were melded together. And it was day seven. I mean, he said, we got so tired of eating salads and unleavened bread. We just really wanted a good sandwich. So we were looking in all kinds of places and we couldn't. We finally decided, they said, to go to the, uh, to the Palestinian uh, quarter of Jerusalem. And they found a good old sub sandwich and they wrapped it up. But the ends were sort of sticking out and they jumped on a bus and immediately, every Jew on that bus saw that sandwich, and they just began to just rail on him and his buddy. They made him sit in the back, and they created a huge distance between them and that sandwich. And this is the last day, the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They got out of that bus, they walked across the park, and Jews from around the park saw them with this bread, and they started giving, yelling out, you know, uh, Yiddish Hebrew epitaphs at them. They... They were so embarrassed. I mean, obviously, they didn't enjoy that bread very well. But talk about taking this seriously. I mean, these traditional Jews take this very, very seriously, even on the, the very last day. Well, we agree, Christians and Jews, what yeast or leaven depicts, it depicts sin and how it takes over our lives. We need to get rid of it. What we don't agree on is how to get rid of it. Our Jewish friends inevitably go to good works, doing good deeds toward one another, toward God. But anyone who takes this seriously knows that our good deeds don't cleanse our guilty consciences. The Apostle Paul says, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one is justified by the law, Romans 3.20. None of us. If only our friends knew what? If only our friends knew who is pictured in this passage 
And even in their own tradition, in the Seder, maybe they would run to him. Maybe you would run to him. Now, the Seder. Let's, uh, let's talk about that briefly, okay? Now, you'll notice some of you already seen it. I've got a plate here, and there's matzah on this plate. But it's not a typical Jewish uh, a Seder. Uh, I'm not doing that because for three reasons. I'm not showing you a Jewish Seder because uh, for two reasons. One, um, uh, it's... Uh, I don't feel worthy. I'm not Jewish. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience doing it. And I'm sure if, you're, if we got Orthodox Jews watching this, I would butcher it so badly. I don't want to offend you, okay? I don't want to offend your sensitivities, okay? I'm going to focus on the matzah here for just a moment. But here's the, let me just tell you, go back to that uh, setter, the picture of the word setter. Now, uh, the truth is uh, all Jews, all religious Jews practice the setter or the seder. They practice it, okay? They don't all practice the Seder the same because Jews, like supposed Christians, they, there's all kinds. I mean, there's Orthodox and there's traditional, there's uh, reform, there's liberal. Uh, some people practice the Seder the, the night of the Passover. That's when it takes place. And that's, they all do that if they're religious. Uh, some of them do it, in a, they do a short version. <laughs> some do longer versions. There are even Jews who do all-nighters. <laughs> but there's always singing involved and storytelling and eating. And they even at one point open the door. They put a cup of wine in the middle and they fill it up for Elijah. And they open the door and they invite Elijah in. There's several reasons for that I'm not going to get bogged down on. But, but here is a, let me show you a couple of, of uh, plates of, of a Seder, typical Seder here. So this would be, uh, you see that there'd be four cups of wine. It's a good thing they took, they had these in their homes because uh, they'd have to call a designated driver otherwise. But, uh, so there'd be, and there'd be different things. Like uh, if we go to the next picture, we've got, I'm ending it. There's the, the festal, the, the egg, uh, which uh, a picture of new life. This, there'd be a lamb shank, which a picture, uh, of course, the sacrifice of the lamb. There'd be bitter herbs to depict the bitterness all of this would hearken them back to Egypt. And they would, they would eat these bitter herbs and just taste, ugh, but it would remind them of the sufferings of their forefathers in Egypt. There would be kind of a combination of cinnamon and nuts um, and, uh, and some other things that would be in this little mixture here that would remind them of the bricks uh, and even apples, bits of apples in here. There would even be, uh, there would even be salt water that they would have, it would remind them of the tears that were shed when they were there and, and suffering. All of these things were, were, were celebrated. Now, the, the four glasses of wine that would be drank during a, a typical Seder also had powerful uh, pictures of their deliverance. So the first one pictured deliverance. The second glass pictured judgment. The third glass, which is the glass many believe Jesus uh, drank uh, at the Lord's table, the, the initiation of the Lord's table, is the cup of redemption. And the final one was the cup of celebration, all right? Now, I do have some matzah here. This is, this is really where it really gets interesting. There, there would be three, there would be three uh, matzahs. That's what this, this is unleavened bread. That's what this matzah is. So what Jews will do during a Seder is they'll take the middle one out, They'll take the middle piece out and then they'll break it. They'll break the matzah. And then they'll take the larger of the two 
and they'll wrap it in a linen cloth. And then the mom will take that linen cloth and hide it, hide it somewhere. Uh, and then the, so more liberal Jews today say the, the only time, the only reason we do that is, is so that we can keep the kids alert because afterwards we, we send them out, try to find that, that piece of matzah. And because uh, the one who finds it gets a prize. Oh, that would be fun. But what they would call this, what they called this, the, the broken piece that they hid, that they put in the linen, they called it the afikamen. Now, remember that. They called it the afikamen. The word afikamen is Greek. It's the only Greek word in the Hebrew Seder. Everything else is Hebrew, except for this. And no one really knows why. No, I mean, there are traditions that are written, but no, the Jews don't agree as to how this even got in to the Seder. They all practice it. But what does it mean? The word afikamen means that which comes after. It, literally, it means I came. That's what it means. I hope you can see where this one's going. Now, listen to what some of the rabbis said about this. Here's one rabbi who said, the Ephekamen represents our liberation from Egyptian exile. That redemption, however, was not a complete one. As we are still awaiting the final redemption with the coming of Messiah, setting aside or hiding the larger half of the matzah reminds us that the best, the real redemption, is yet to come, still hidden in the future. That was written by a rabbi who has yet to believe on the Lord Jesus. Another Jewish scholar from Oxford, David Dobb, says, in Jesus' day, the afikamen, again, the only Greek word in this Seder, meant the coming one. Speaking of the expectation of the coming Messiah, the whole piece, the whole piece of matzah uh, represents all of Israel, okay? Then broken off, the larger piece represent Messiah cut off. And from the text to be cut off <laughs> means to die. And that's exactly what Messiah did, didn't he? And then to be wrapped in linen and put away only to be found later. I don't know if you're seeing this, but you should. There is a picture of the perfect life in the unleavened bread because leaven represents sin and Jesus was the lamb without spot or without blemish. He was the unleavened lamb. Broken, that is he died. was buried and wrapped in linen, I might add. The best was really yet to come, was it not? In fact, Dobb argues, this Jewish scholar argues that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24, when Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, he was holding the afikamen. Think about that. In other words, though we can't be dogmatic about that, when Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you, he was saying, I am this bread represented. That your wait is over. I've come. Well, we believe that. Christians believe that Messiah has come. 
His suffering gave way to his glory, the resurrection. Little kids would walk around, they would look, and suddenly someone would find, I found it, I found it. And they would open it up. And then this is at the very end of the Seder, and they would break it up and they would pass it around and they would all partake of it as a sort of dessert, if you please. Is Jesus not the ultimate prize? All pictured here. The best really is yet to come because he's coming again. But in essence, every person listening out there, and if you happen to have a Jewish orientation, you need to know he's already come. Go find your afikaman. Your wait is over. He's come to you. Now you go to him. Let me just conclude our time this morning. Conclude our time with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What it says to us today, just several things. We'll go quickly here. Number one, this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread says to us, God sees your sin. He sees your sin. He sees you. He knows everything about you. David wrote about this in the 139th Psalm. Again, if you're Jewish, listen in. Your Old Testament tells us this. Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You can't hide anything from God. God knows you from the inside out. The Feast of Unleavened Bread also says that sin like leaven seeks to dominate your life. The very properties of leaven, the very characteristics of leaven tell us that. Jesus affirmed that. The Apostle Paul affirmed that. Leaven is a picture of sin. And not just sin, the nature of sin, which is to take you, grab you, possess you, control you, which is exactly what it's doing in some of your lives as we speak. Did you know that the very first reference to sin in the Bible illustrates this? Let me, let me, let me give you the background. Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden. They have a couple of kids, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are bringing their offerings, and uh, Abel brings an offering acceptable to God, presumably a blood sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, brings the work of his hands, the fruit of the ground, and God is not pleased with his sacrifice. And he's upset about the fact that God didn't honor Cain because Cain didn't honor God. God enters into a conversation with Cain. And he says, why are you so downtrodden? Why is your face so downtrodden, Cain? He said, you know, if you do what's right, it'll go well for you. But if you don't, and here is the very first reference to sin in the Bible. Tell me if this doesn't sound like leaven. Actually, it sounds like an animal, worse than leaven. Here it is. Sin, God says, is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. Sin wants to permeate and dominate your life. Thirdly, God wants you to take your sin seriously. I mean, obviously, if it's trying to envelop you, permeate you, control you, then you need to take it seriously. In that same 139th Psalm, remember David said in the first verse, he says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. That's a fact. It's just a hard core fact. God has searched you. God knows you. There's nothing hidden in you, not from God. And yet at the very end of the very same Psalm, written at the very same time, 
from the stylus of David. David says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's anything wicked in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, now, think with me, if you will. Now, just think with me. Think. At the beginning of this psalm, David says, he says, Lord, you have searched me. It's just a fact. You've searched me. You know me. At the end, he says, search me, O God. Was he contradicting himself? Not at all. And this is where we have to get to. Here's what David was doing. At the end of the psalm, David was welcoming what God was already doing. That's what he was. He was welcoming what God was already doing. I mean, that's probably where many of you are. You already know God knows you, but you don't welcome that. You don't welcome his penetrating eye that he sees deep inside of you. But that's where you got to get to. You, you if you take your sins seriously, then you take God seriously. And you take his love seriously because he loves you even though you are a sinner. R. Kent Hughes again says, God wanted to do something more than get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. That's going to happen if we take our sin seriously. Fourthly, God wants you to confess your sin and enjoy his forgiveness. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's it. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, that means to agree with God, agree with that penetrating eye of God. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So agree with God. Confess it. And by implication, forsake it. And God will give you the enjoyment of sins forgiven. And finally... God wants you to partake of the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, right? You do that by believing in what he has done for you, that the bread of life came, lived that perfect life. I told you at the beginning that, that God brought about redemption in part through the perfect life of Jesus. The other part was the sacrificial death of Jesus. The lamb had to be perfect. The lamb had to be killed. The lamb had to be applied. That's how you come to know God. That's how you receive the bread of life. And that's how you will deal with all of the powers of sin in this world that try and desire to take over your life. And indeed are in some cases right now. You need the bread of life who will deal with the storms of sin. Speaking of storms, did you know that the Moroccan Orthodox Jews in Morocco, when they celebrate the Seder, they take a piece of the, of the, uh, the, of the afikamen that has been, you know, was wrapped formally, found, pulled out, you know, distributed, they take a little piece of it and they keep it in their pocket from that Seder until the next Seder a year later. I don't know how, I don't, how, I don't know how any, of it, any of it could be left, but that's what they do. But let me tell you why they do it. 
because their tradition says if they are ever on the sea and a terrible storm breaks out and the waves are breaking, all they need do is pull out the afikamen and throw it in the water and the waters will go calm. <laughs> Can you say Jesus? Listen, as we conclude today, my heart's desire and prayer to God for you as a follower of Jesus, that you would love him more dearly for all that he endured for you. Pictured here in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, here it is. Christ died for you according to the scriptures. He was buried and spent three days in the grave, again, according to the scripture, and then rose again, again, according to the scripture. If you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessings of the, his death, his burial, and his resurrection will all be yours, and the power from God himself to overcome life-dominating sin. He is the unleavened bread of life. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we're so grateful for the time we could spend in your word and look at the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Lord, as we're gathering in our homes right now and worshiping you, we'll sing here in a few moments. God, I pray that every heart would be bowed right now, thinking about Jesus, the perfect son of God. And, and to realize that his righteousness, his perfectly righteous life could be ours if we would partake of him by faith, believing that he died and rose again for us. And if that's you, dear friend, as we're praying, would you just bow your heart and believe on the Lord right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe that he is the bread of life. He is your bread of life. Believe in his sacrifice. Believe in his resurrection and tell him that. Confess your sin and turn to him now so that you no longer have to be dominated by the life-dominating properties, nature, and characteristic of sin. Oh, God. We pray these things with your blessing upon everyone listening in Jesus' name, amen.